Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship service. I am Stephen Azera, the teaching pastor here at Calvary Baptist Church, and we're grateful that you and your family have decided to participate in our preaching and teaching ministry. And it is our prayer that we are a blessing to you and your family uh, and that you are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This morning is our 12th lecture in the Uh, 1 Samuel series. Uh, We are in chapter 5, and we are going to read and then examine verses 1 through 12. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us with our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Last week, the Philistines defeated the people of Israel in two separate battles, uh, which were very decisive victories for the Philistines because the Israelites lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Among their dead were Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons. A messenger escapes from battle. He goes to Uh, Shiloh in order to bring the news to Eli. And when Eli hears the news, he falls over backwards in his chair. He breaks his neck and he dies. But that's not all. The scripture says that Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, she goes into severe labor pains because of the bad news. And as she gives birth to a son, she names him Ichabod because God's glory departed from Israel. 
The Philistines take the Ark of God as a trophy of war to the city of Ashdod. The land of Philistia had five major cities. Each of these major cities had their own lord. Uh, these five major cities were Gath, the Goliath, the giant came from Gath, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Ashdod. Ashdod was a very important city to the Philistines because of its location. Uh, it was a very populated location because a road that led from Egypt to Palestine actually ran through the city of Ashdod. And so the Philistines heavily guarded the city of Ashdod. A lot of travelers would go through. Ashdod is mentioned once in the New Testament. By the time of the Gospels, the city was renamed Azotus, and it's the place where Philip continued his ministry after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. But according to verse 2 in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was three false gods that the Philistines worshipped along with Baal, Zebel, and the Ashtoreth. But the Philistines considered Dagon to be their chief god. According to Philistine mythology, Dagon was the father of Baal, and he's one of the more popular false gods of the Old Testament. The Philistines believed that Dagon had control over the grain, and he had control over the rain, two of the most important resources at that time for those people. The first time the scripture mentions Dagon is back in Judges chapter 16. When the Philistines captured Samson, they made a great sacrifice to Dagon, believing that it was their God who delivered Samson into their hands. And then in later, and then later in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, after King Saul is killed, the Philistines take his head and place it in Dagon's temple. One last important detail about the god Dagon. Uh, later in the book of Jonah, uh, the prophet was commanded by God to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Jonah refused. He boards a ship. The Lord causes a great storm to come upon the sea. Jonah's thrown overboard, and he ends up in the belly of a great fish. The Ninevites, who worship Dagon, they built their statue of Dagon to look like a half-fish and a half-human. So it's not hard to see why the Ninevites would listen to Jonah, a man who was just thrown up onto their shores by a great fish. The morning after the Ark of God was placed next to Gagan in his temple, the Philistines found their God on the ground downward before the Ark of God. Dagon was literally bowing down before the Lord. Now, let's not miss this. Uh, something important is going on behind the scenes. In the ancient world, nations believed that the outcome of wars were decided by the gods. That as the nations battled, they believed their gods were also fighting. And whoever won the battle of the gods would win the battle of the nations. Remember the phrase, my dad can beat up your dad? Well, that's the sentiment. Whichever nation won the battle, it was believed that their God was the strongest. So in the mind of the Philistines, 
Their victory over Israel of over Israel was huge. Huge. Because remember, the Israelites, they brought the Ark of Covenant into the land. And when the Israelites first brought the Ark of Covenant into the battle, what was the reaction of the Philistines? They were terrified. They, they've heard of the God of Israel before. They knew of God's miracles that he inflicted over the Egyptians. The Philistines heard of all the plagues that happened to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt. And so the Philistines were not only impressed by God's power, they were also terrified. They knew what God could do. But they win the battle. And so they take Israel's God captive. And it was symbolic as taking the people of Israel captive. And now this mighty God, this powerful and mighty God was in their possession. And the Philistines thought that this mighty and powerful God who inflicted harm over the Egyptians was now subordinate to their God, Dagon. And so they take the Ark of God and they place it into the temple of Dagon. But one the next morning, the Philistines wake up and Dagon's fallen over. At first, they, they think nothing of it. They just take the statue and they put it back where it was. They, they simply believe it just got knocked over. But on the second day, Dagon's statue fell again before the Lord. And this time, Dagon's head and his arms were broken off, but only his torso remained intact. The Philistines knew that this was not an accident. In verse 6, the scripture says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the scripture mentions the hand of God, it's not referring to a literal hand. God doesn't have a hand. The divine nature does not possess human physical parts. God the Father doesn't have a hand. God the Spirit doesn't have a hand. And God the Son only has a hand according to his human nature. God the Son, when he took upon a human nature at the incarnation, that's when he took on the physical body. But before the incarnation, God the Son didn't have a physical body. He didn't have a head. He didn't have an arm. He didn't have hands, two feet, legs, nothing. God is a spirit. The divine being does not have physical body parts. In fact, the divine being doesn't have any parts. So what does the scripture mean when it says God's hand or the hand of God? Scripture is using imagery to relate to us God's sovereign power, God's universal power. And the Bible uses the phrase, the hand of God, a lot when describing God's power. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, the scripture says, God's mighty hand can exalt the humble. Jesus says in John 10, 29, that no one is strong enough to snatch 
uh, the people of God out of God's hand. Isaiah 41.10 says, God will uphold us by his right hand. After his resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God. God says that our names are engraved in the palms of his hand. God's hand was on all his prophets. God's hand was on all his kings. God drove out the Canaanites by a strong right hand. The Lord crushed the Egyptians by a strong right hand. When the Bible says the hand of God, it's not literally meaning a hand. It's referring to God's universal and sovereign power. And, and let's, be, let's be clear on this. If the Lord does not possess this kind of power, he doesn't exist. He isn't God. And that's the point of the Lord executing his judgments against the Egyptians, against the Philistines. It's a demonstration of his power. It's a demonstration that Egypt and Philistines' false gods are no match for him. Their false gods do not have the ability to uh, exert their power over God. God's the one with the mighty right hand. He has all power and authority. And he demonstrates his power and authority by inflicting his wrath upon his enemies. Well, how strong is God? We could use terms like omnipotence, dominion, master, and, and they all would be true when we're talking about God's power. He is omnipotent. Uh, he, is, he is all dominion. He is uh, the master and Lord over everything. But I like the way that Jesus talks about the power of God. Uh, in, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as the power. It's, it's his nickname according to Jesus. And, and we all know about nicknames, right? They are earned. Um, you know, if, if someone calls you, uh, you know, stinky head, right? You have that nickname because you smell, right? That's how nicknames work. They're earned. That's how they're given. But in Mark chapter 14, after Jesus has been arrested in the garden, He's brought before the Jewish council. And the council asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says to them, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus uses that term power in Mark 14, 62, describing God, it's used as a proper noun. He's calling his father power. God is so strong. God is so mighty that it's his name. He's named power. And since God is power and that's his name, there's nothing too hard for him. He can do whatever he pleases. But here's the interesting part about God's power. 
it's understood in two ways. Uh, it's either understood as authority or as strength. Humans can possess one without the other. For example, it's possible for a human to be in a position of authority and that human to be a weak individual. There are many men who are in positions of authority, but they're physically weak. There are men who can be physically strong. They're capable of lifting heavy things, but they're not in a position of authority. This isn't true about God. It can't be true about God. When we describe God's power, we are describing God being in the highest position of authority and possessing the most strength. That's what we mean. When the Bible talks about the hand of God, the power of God, it's describing him being the highest position of authority and obtaining the most strength of everyone, of anyone. And so when we talk about God's power, we're talking about his authority to do as he pleases, but also possessing the strength to actually do it. God's power cannot be restrained. It cannot be checked. It cannot be frustrated. God's power is like himself. God's eternal, infinite, and incomprehensible. So is his power. And so when we talk about God's power, we're talking about something that is identical to his being. And that's why Jesus calls his father power. Because God's strength is identical with his being. All of God's attributes are identical with his being. Every one of them. Since God's being is incomprehensible, it is uh, omniscient, it is eternal and infinite, all of his attributes are infinite, eternal, and incomprehensible. Every one of God's attributes and especially his power. And God demonstrates that power three separate times in the midst of these Philistine people. Three separate times. And the third demonstration is not merely just knocking over an idol twice and then having the idol's hands and head break off. Oh no. The third demonstration is an absolute doozy. God afflicts the people of Ashdod with tumors. The term tumors refers to painful swelling in the lymph nodes, the armpits, the groin. In the ancient world, tumors were caused by rats and they were carriers of the bubonic plague. And and most Old Testament scholars believe that's what the Lord inflicted on the people of Ashdod. He inflicted the bubonic plague on them. And the scripture says, after this happened, the lords of the Philistines gathered together because the people of Ashdod, the ones that survived, they, they didn't want this around no more. They didn't want the Ark of God in their city anymore. And I don't blame them. It was a terror to them. 
So these five lords, they agree to move the Ark of God to the city of Gath, which is about 12 miles south. And as soon as the Ark of God enters the city of Gath, the tumors broke out upon those, on the young and the old. So it was worse than what happened in, in Ashdod. Again, the people of uh, Gath get together and they say, you know what, we don't want this Ark anymore. The five lords of the Philistines, they make the decision to send the Ark to the city of Ekron. But even before the ark arrives, the people of Ekron, they meet together and they all agreed not to receive this ark of covenant. But before the ark could be sent to another place besides Ekron, the plague breaks out in that city. And it's worse than what happened in Ashdod and what happened in Gath. Not only is the entire city of Ekron struck with tumors, but some of the people just die from the panic. Even the people who didn't have the tumors, they die from shock, from panic, from being terrified, just from having God's presence in their midst. They just fall over and die. But don't miss this. Look at verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 5 and the last sentence, the scripture says, the cry of the city went up to heaven. The people of Ekron were so desperate for help that they disregarded their own idol and instead they cried out to the Lord. The same thing that happened in Ekron, Gath, and Ashdod happened in Egypt. What the Philistines feared, they knew, we said earlier, they knew what, what happened in Egypt. They knew that the God of Israel struck with the, the Egyptians with great plagues. And what they feared has now come to their doorstep. And it isn't coincidence. It isn't a coincidence that these judgments that happened to Egypt have now come upon the Philistines. And in these particular cities, the city of Ashdod, the city of Gath, the, the city of Ekron, these were the cities of the Philistines that had temples. The temples that contained their idols. And so by exerting his power over the Philistines in these three cities, God is exerting his power over their gods. He's pronouncing his lordship. I can do whatever I want and none of your gods can stop me. And the people know it. This is a clear demonstration of God's power. God's testifying to his existence. And it's a clear demonstration that the Philistines' gods cannot save them from Israel's God. And so they cry out for help. Their response is the same as the demon's response in the book of James in the New Testament. Remember, James says, even the demons believe, but they shudder. Demons don't believe 
God as in receiving him by faith. No, their belief in God is just a belief in his existence. Like the Philistines. But just like the demons, the Philistines will have no excuse on the day of judgment. None. I mean, think about this story. The Philistines clearly acknowledge God's existence. They know his power. They know that he's divine. They they see his attributes. They know that he is a, a, a divine being that truly exists. That he's exerting his power over their God. So he's the the greatest God according to the Philistines. His existence is clearly made known to them. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Isn't that exactly what 1 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 12 is talking about? What Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, how God reveals his displeasure in the form of judgment against unbelievers because although God has clearly manifested his presence, his existence to the people, the people did not acknowledge him as their God. They did not give thanks to him But instead, they created idols in his place. Isn't that what the Philistines are doing here? Hasn't God clearly manifested his existence to the Philistines? Absolutely. And it's in the form of wrath. It's in the form of judgment. But instead of repenting of their sin, instead of having faith in God, feeling sorry for their idolatry, the Philistines double back on it. God has clearly manifested his presence. They know he's a, he exists. We read that text again. The Philistines know of the God of Israel. But they did not give him honor. They did not give him glory. They knew of his existence. And all humans do. Every human, all humans know of God's eternal existence through the realities of time, space, and objects. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter one. 
God has made his presence known through the things that he has made. He has made his divine power, his divine existence known. The things that you cannot see because God is a spirit, he has made known in the works of his hands. But the reason why humans fall into idolatry and polytheism and atheism and agnosticism is because we react against the evidence for God's existence. For instance, instead of worshiping God in response to his revelation, we suppress that truth and we make idols to stand in God's place. In fact, the mere existence of many religions is strong evidence of our rebellion against God. Every unbeliever knows that God exists. But the knowledge that they possess isn't saving knowledge. Isn't saving knowledge. But they do know that God exists. Every human including unbelievers. That's why there isn't any true atheism. Since unbelievers know of God's existence, there isn't any real sense of atheism in the world. The atheism that people claim to have is their efforts to suppress the truth of what they already know. Unbelievers are not atheists in their minds. They're atheists in their works. They're atheists in their lifestyles. They're not atheists in their consciences because their conscience knows the truth. The truth of God may be suppressed in their minds, but it's still there. And this is a reason why God is justified in sending unbelievers to hell. We talked last week about the afterlife and, and what happens to unbelievers when they die and they, they're sent to hell. And the objection may be, well, that's cruel. No, cruelty, cruelty or unjust punishment is not sending people to hell. Cruelty or unjust punishment is sending innocent people to hell. And God doesn't send any innocent people to hell. Cruelty would be God inflicting his wrath on the Philistines if they've done nothing wrong. But these Philistines are guilty of sin. They're idolaters. They've rejected God. They hate God. They dishonor him with their lives. Instead of worshiping God, they treat him as a trivial being. And so God gives unbelievers a foretaste of what their eternal state would be like through his judgments here in the world. God's wrath, according to Paul, is against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And God's wrath is revealed from heaven in the world. It comes from heaven to the world through personal and sometimes worldwide judgment. God's judgment was revealed in the flood in the days of Noah, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
the destruction of the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Philistines right here. God's wrath can be revealed in, in personal judgments against a, a, a person such as Judas Iscariot or Jezebel in the Bible, or it could be a worldwide judgment like the flood. So this is just a foretaste. God's wrath, his judgments against men are a foretaste of what they're going to experience for all eternity. God uses famines, fires, floods to execute his wrath. God's judgment is handed out through civil authorities. God's judgment is handed out through fathers and the elders of the church. God establishes fathers, the elders, civil government to be those who execute his judgment in the world. But God's greatest judgment against unbelievers is permitting them to remain in a state of sin and death. That's his greatest judgment on earth against unbelievers. God refuses to call them to repentance. He allows them to remain in their state of sin, just like he's doing with the Philistines. He's not calling them to repentance. He's not calling them to faith. Here's the reality. The reason why God tarries and why God is patient in ending the world isn't for the sake of the wicked, but for the sake of his own people. The reason why God is patient and hasn't ended the world yet is because he's still waiting for his people to come out of their sin and to a state of faith and repentance. God isn't waiting for unbelievers those that will never come to faith. He's not waiting for them. No, God is waiting for those that he has elected, the chosen people. He's waiting for them to come to faith and repentance. And when that happens, when that last member of his elect comes to saving faith, God then will destroy the world along with the wicked. Psalm 7, 12, and 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The Philistines. Several times here in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, God manifested his existence. To the Philistines. And they knew of him, right? Like I said, they, they knew of the stories. They, they've heard what the God of Israel has done to the Egyptians. And those same judgments that God levied out against the Philistines, he also levied against the Egyptians. And so it's like a deja vu for them. Their greatest fears have become realities. But instead of repenting, instead of being, being in mourning over their sin, 
They refuse. They reject the manifestation of God and they cling to their idols, uh, the things that they've made with their own hands instead of the God who has the mighty hand who created them with his own hands. They reject him and they cling to the creation of their own hands, to the creation of their own minds. And they turned the existence of immortal God into mortal creatures. Fake stones, carved images that look like men and and animals, things in the air, things on earth, things under the earth. They've changed the image of the immortal God to mortal creatures. And they are without excuse.